Welcome to the Finside Chats podcast. This podcast is for the relentlessly curious and dives headfirst into the timely and complicated topics that live and breathe in the fintech, startup, and mortgage lending spaces. Welcome to Finside Chats. I'm Costa Ligris, Stavi CEO and founder. And man, am I excited today. I am here to welcome Patrick Stone, chairman and founder of Williston Financial Group, commonly known as WFG. Pat's joining me, and I couldn't be more excited to have him on Finside Chats. Pat's enjoyed a lengthy career in real estate, including several C officer positions with three public companies, and as a director of two Fortune 500 boards. Inman News has named him one of 2013's 100 most influential people in real estate, and in 2015, one of the top 101 real estate industry doers. In 2009, Pat was named one of the Housing Wire's Vanguard Award recipients. Now, what his bio doesn't tell you is Pat is also friends with me, and I value our relationship, our friendship. He is absolutely a legend in the real estate and title industry, and I'm so excited to have him here. Uh, He lives in beautiful Portland, Oregon, has hosted me and showed me around with his wife, Vicky, and they have three daughters and seven grandchildren. And Pat, welcome to Finside Chats. Thank you, Costa. I'm honored to be here. So, you know, Pat, in preparing for this, it is interesting. Like Aaron from the Stabby team sent me some questions and I'm sitting here looking at this and I'm like, I could probably talk to Pat for three hours and not get bored. I mean, the listeners would, of course, get bored. But how about like a little intro? Like, how did you end up getting into real estate and title? Because most kids don't say like, when I grow up, I want to be in title insurance. Well, long story, Costa. Basically, I was in the Army, then I went to college. I entered grad school and uh, discovered fairly quickly that I didn't have the patience for grad school. So I dropped out, went to Mexico and Oyster Dove for about six months in a small town in Mexico. Woke up one morning in my hammock, and I realized that probably wasn't going to be a career. So I came back to the States, got back to Portland, Oregon, had $25 in my pocket and needed a job. And I found an ad for title examiner trainee. Had no idea what it was, but I applied for the job. I liked the guy that was running the operation, took the job, and uh, that launched my career in 1975. I love it. I love it. And uh, what about WFG? What's the founding story there? Like, how did WFG come to be? And uh, is it everything you dreamt of? So I got the idea for WFG when I was on a a board of one of the larger title companies. And this was uh, right during the downturn, the Great Recession. And uh, prior to the Great Recession, we'd had three states starting to tighten up their rating uh, requirements. And I thought that the combination of uh, insurance commissioners being more aware of title insurance rates and paying more attention to them, plus the Great Recession, it was going to cause the industry to have to become more efficient and uh, be able to provide services with a lot less FF&E, offices, equipment, and all that sort of stuff. So came up with the idea of WFG creating a national title insurance underwriter with operations, direct owned operations in seven Western states and agents, uh, at least three agents in the top 75 SMSAs. Uh, so we've launched the company with the idea of creating a very efficient national underwriter that could produce and uh, service clients with a lot less overhead. So consequently, would have a lot, a lot more flexibility with regards to downward pressure on rates. Now, candidly, it hasn't happened as fast as I thought, but you're starting to see more and more attention like Fannie Mae looking for title alternatives or promoting AOLs. The idea being that we need to do something about the cost of transactions in real estate. 
in this industry, we need to be aware of this because we're going to have increasing pressure on it. And, uh, you know, we've been blessed with a liability-based pricing system. Uh, consequently, our uh, average fee keeps going up as prices appreciate. And uh, that's not going to be defensible for much longer. And we're going to have to be more efficient. So that was the idea behind WFG. We have executed uh, fairly well on it. The recovery from the Great Recession took a little bit longer than we all hoped. And then we had, a, the, of course, we had the blessing of the low rates the last couple of years. Now we're back to reality. Uh, so uh, happy with what we've created. And I think we're well positioned to withstand any pressure on rates. You know, one of the things I really enjoyed pre-COVID is you and I did a series of talks around technology in the industry. And one of the observations that came as a result of those tours, and we did one in Florida, we did one in New York, I think we may have even done one up here in New England, was WFG agents are proud to be WFG agents. They're loyal. The company has always done just a remarkable job supporting them and providing them with tools and resources to grow their business. And so kudos to you for that. And I know it's not by mistake. We have owned operations in seven Western states. Everywhere else, agents are a part of our footprint. They are a part of WFG, and they are, their success is our success. We are not successful without them. So we invest in them. We're very, very focused on making them successful, helping them continue to grow, and that benefits us. They make more money. We make more money. So I like our agents. No, I and it shows, and they like you. So there's no such thing as having a conversation with Pat Stone where we're not going to get into talking about the housing environment and the macro. I just, I, I could listen to you talk for hours and hours and hours. I actually pretended to be a mini Pat Stone. Back in uh, June, I was asked to speak at MIT's reunion on the future of housing and, and the real estate market. And I got into the data and I pulled up absorption rates. You would have been so proud of me. But now this is awesome because I get to ask the experts. So what has surprised you the most in 2023 so far? That's a difficult question. I think probably what has surprised me the most is the impact of the media and its focus on all the uncertainty and problems out there. We've had a decline in inflation and it's been very, very slow to show up in interest rates. And the anxiety level in the country is at an extraordinarily high level. And when I talk about the media focusing on things, uh, we had a banking crisis that wasn't really a banking crisis. I mean, right now we have, what, 4,800 banks in this country, which is probably way too many, to be honest with you. We had a couple banks that had management make some mistakes, and consequently they went under. That created this idea that we were having a banking crisis, and uh, we're still getting the impact of that because the regulators have found it necessary to require more assets uh, and uh and put pressure on banks, and they're still putting pressure on banks, which has caused banks to be more conservative, raise their lending standards, so forth and so on. So we had the banking crisis, we had the debt ceiling issue, and the politicians, I just, I, I have a hard time not swearing at these idiots that don't <laughs> understand the impact of their behavior. But the debt ceiling crisis was just uh, totally unnecessary. We're going to have a repeat here shortly at the end of September on funding for the government. But the debt ceiling crisis resulted in Fitch downgrading the U.S. Uh, debt from AAA to AA plus, and, and that was unnecessary, but that caused pressure on the rates. We had the focus on uh, commercial real estate debt, 
There's about 1.5 trillion of commercial real estate debt that comes due by the end of 2025. The media has beaten this drum like it's going to be a crisis, a catastrophe. You know, there's probably two trillion out there ready to buy these assets. So I think that one's overblown. We've had some focus on the credit bubble, and there maybe is some justification for that. But like household debts now at 17 trillion. Global public debt's at 92 trillion. U.S. government debt is about 118 percent of GDP. It's at what 31.5 trillion. We have over a trillion dollars worth of credit card debt now. We have an extraordinary amount of debt in this country, and I do think we need to do something about it. Although I will tell you, if we don't increase the debt and we increase the size of the economy, the problem becomes less and less of an issue. So we just need to be a little bit more rational and cooperative in the government about. Uh, creating a balanced uh, federal budget. We have geopolitical uncertainty. You know, we have the Ukraine situation. We have a pending recession in China. We just have a whole bunch of issues that the media has continued to highlight and stress. So consequently, the anxiety level in this country is very high now, even though the underlying economic data is fairly good. We have job openings going down. We have core inflation going down. We have a lot of things trending the right way. We're not going to see the benefit of it right away because of the overriding anxiety and all these issues out there. So I am confident that by the end of the year, we will see uh, inflation continue to come down, maybe to maybe about 3.5% on PCE. And then we'll also see lower interest rates on mortgages and so forth. It'll be gradual. It'll be slow, but I'm pretty confident it will happen. I love how you framed the quote unquote, banking crisis. And what was really fascinating was I'm sitting here talking to people through that period. And of course, they're calling me and we had exposure with companies that that I've invested in and, and advised and the like. But what's fascinating is you nailed it. This wasn't a crisis. As a matter of fact, it was a run in a bank and a really well-run bank. Despite everything else that's going on, they could suffer the same if there's this viral effect of let's get our money out of the bank. And I think what people don't recognize is you know, first of all, no two crises are created equal, right? But a bank run today is very different than a bank run 30 or 40 years ago, where you have to stand in line and wait to get to a teller to get your money out of the bank. You go to your computer now and you hit a couple buttons and poof. And so billions of dollars can exit in minutes. And uh, and that's the reality of what we saw there. And so, and to your point, I mean, we're seeing now the average 30-year mortgage is down this week over last week. Mortgage applications for the first time this week are up in quite some time. And so I agree with you. So what's your prediction sort of for the rest of the year? Well, I think the impact and trend is going to be positive, but it's not going to be rapid. Again, the overriding the overriding concern nationally right now, uh, stressed by the, the press and all the issues they focus on, and then just the level of uncertainty that the American consumer has because of the because of the media, we're going to see a slight slow decline. I mean, in interest rates, I think that will offset uh, some of the seasonal trends. I do think overall activity will decline slightly because you do have seasonality in place. But I think by the end of the year, we're going to be a little bit more optimistic than we are right now. Again, I think you're going to see a PCE down about three and a half percent. I think you'll get mortgage rates back under seven percent by the end of the year. I think next year it'll get better and better as the year goes on. I think by the end of the first quarter, we'll be down in the low sixes. And I think by mid-year, we could be down under six. And then I think that'll create a very good second half the next year. But it's going to be a corrective process that takes a while, again, because there is so many issues out there. You know, it's really funny right now, just to cost, I'm going a little bit off script here, but it's really funny right now to watch 
the American consumer who's uh, spending more money right now this summer and saving less. That kind of runs contrary to what you think would be happening. Yep. Uh, but the American consumer had a lot of extra money going into this year, about a trillion dollars more in disposable income than they had prior to the pandemic. So we are readjusting. That's coming back into balance so that the consumer's spendable dollars and savings go be- get back to normal. And I think that'll be corrected by the end of the year. Yeah, I agree with you. We're seeing, obviously, indicators there in terms of how much people have in terms of savings compared to to COVID uh, and the like. And I think you're right. We're seeing it, right? The rates will come down slower than they went up. That's for sure. <laughs> and certainly we saw, we saw an increase in such a short period of time, which created so much panic in the industry. It sounds like you expect that the second half of 2024, we're going to have some sort of a semblance of a normal market. Yeah, I think we'll be back to a normal market. And if the decline in inflation continues, and I think it will, especially if the global environment continues to improve. I mean, the supply chain issue is over now. That's taken care of. I do think you're going to see more competitive pricing by uh, third world and emerging markets. So I think as inflation continues to come down, market's going to get better and better. And I think 2025 is going to be a, a really, really good year. Uh, and I'm betting some serious money on it right now. And I think it's going to be a good year because, you know, if you look at real estate, I'm going to ramble a little bit here on you. If you look at real estate, everybody talks about supply and demand, but they don't yep. necessarily break that down like they should. Supply, obviously, is uh, resale plus new construction. Demand is three things. Demand is need, desire, and affordability. The need is there between millennials and Gen Z. You have a population bubble, the increased homebuyer cycle, very similar to the baby boomers. And over the next 10 years, you're going to have a lot of people buying homes. So the need is there. The desire is actually higher than people think. When I was really young, uh, you became an adult. The first thing you did was you bought a home. That dissipated over the last 40, 50 years. People became less and less inclined to do it. But right now, that's reemerged, I think, to a large extent because of the pandemic. But I think you have about 75% of the people thinking, uh, according to a poll, think that owning a home is a part of the American dream. And about 68% of young people think that buying a home is a first step towards intergenerational wealth. So desire is back. Need is going to be very significant. Second less need to the baby boomer cycle. Desire is very, very high. All we need is for affordability to come back into line. And that's a function of interest rates. You're going to see a very, very good market in 2025 if we get mortgage rates down uh, five and a half to five percent. And uh, if we got them under five, it'll go through the roof. But uh, you'll never see. Well, I shouldn't say never, but my lifetime, I doubt that you'll see mortgage rates down to four percent again. Yeah, I agree. I've said that before, though, too. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I remember obviously being in title and settlement. This whole narrative around millennials are not going to buy homes. They don't care about buying homes. And surprise, millennials are buying homes and they bought homes. And some of them have traded a home for a second home. And so, yeah, it's really interesting. So I want to switch now to your overseas direct operations on the West Coast. You have a huge agency base uh, in the rest of the country, as we talked about earlier. What are some top tips for title agents and title companies right now to operate more efficiently given the macro and the market? We're seeing sort of across the board. They're anxious. They're worried about costs. They're worried about the decreased volume. What are some of the tips? I mean, you know, like the insurance commercial, Pat, you've seen a thing or two, so you know a thing or two. Well, I'm going to get a little philosophical on you to start. 
One of the things I would attribute some, if not a lot of my success to, is a, a Stoic philosopher named Epoctetus. And he was very, very uh, famous, but he was really, the thing I liked about him the most was he really focused on one thing about having a quality life, and that is understanding what you control and what you don't control. Don't spend time and energy and, and effort on things you can't control. Put your focus on things you can control. So in other words, instead of spending half the day talking about where the market's going or how bad things are, spend your time looking at your operation, looking at the things you can control. I would strongly recommend to everybody operating a company, be it in the title insurance industry or elsewhere, come up with a metric so that you can tie your expenses to the volume of business, some metric that allows you to actually track it. In our industry, it's very easy to use open files per employee because employees are typically 40 to 50% of everybody's expenses. So you have to adjust your staffing based on the amount of business you have. Now, you can be very proactive about it. You can also be very humane about it. Uh, you could do work share. You could do uh, partial time off. You can do a lot of things to mitigate your employee expenses. You can also really sit down and take a look at all your expense lines which things are you spending money on that are actually tied to the client perception of your operation? Which things have no market impact at all? Outsource or move the things that don't impact the market to some more viable and less expensive source. WFG provides blocks. And what we do with blocks is what are saying here is, we want agents to move their fixed cost to a variable cost. So they only have an expense when they actually need it. That could be title production. Uh, we offer uh, HR, marketing, cybersecurity, rental cars. I mean, we have all kinds of things that you can access through our blocks program and actually incur the expense when you need it. Make it a variable expense. Get out of this idea that you have to have everything in order to be viable because if the clients don't identify with that expenditure, make it variable. Get it out. Get it out so it's not hanging over your head. You want to control the things that the client perceives as being identified with your brand. Everything else doesn't matter. So true. And, and it's really remarkable that it really resonates, right? Because there's the things that we can't control, we still want to talk about them. It's human nature. And that's okay, but they shouldn't be driving your business, right? Yeah. If you and I could could move rates down, we would. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Well, this sort of segues into the next point, which is, you know, and I'm familiar obviously with blocks and some of the really amazing tools and opportunities that you have for agents to save money and and capture discounts. It sort of moves into my next question, which is the role of technology. That's not just some of the stuff that we've built here at Stavi with eSign, remote notary workflows and and vendor management pieces, but just really broadly speaking, obviously now everyone wants to talk about artificial intelligence and bots and automation and, and all these things, but what is the role of technology and how should title agents be embracing technology? Where can they be critical and where should they be investing their time and money? If I may, I'd like to take it back a step so that people uh, have maybe have a better perception of what the underlying problem is. If you look at the real estate industry, you have lenders, you have realtors, you have title companies, appraisers, inspectors. We are all regulated differently. The insurance industry is regulated by state by state, so it's actually regulated differently within the industry. But there has been very, very little uh, integration or interface 
between the different verticals in the real estate industry. The advent of APIs has really helped, uh, and we're seeing more integration now between lenders and title companies. We're starting to see some integration between realtors and title companies, but I think really integration is a bigger issue. It has more impact than artificial intelligence right now in our industry. AI has been around in this industry that I know of personally for about 23 years was very involved in starting the first automated title product uh, in the year 2000. And consequently, you've had AI in this industry. But what people don't understand, and actually had a very interesting uh, meeting with uh, one of the uh, government agencies about a month and a half ago, and I explained to them how much difference there is in databases around the country, both in quality and the type of data available, which mitigates the ability to have AI be such a tremendous factor in the title business. Will it be a factor? Yes. And it will grow over time. But really, right now, I don't think focusing on AI is really where people should be putting their attention. They should be talking to their underwriter and looking for automation sources that will help them do more integrations uh, that will allow them to access more information online and do things more on an automated basis because it's faster and less expensive. Talk to your underwriter. Uh, we have a tech subsidiary called My Home. We do a tremendous amount with our agents and would love to do even more. You can use technology very, very effectively right now, but don't get hung up on the media's focus on AI, which is overblown right now. AI will have a factor and it will be an increasing factor. But right now, foster all the integrations you can so you don't keep rekeying the same data over and over again and making mistakes doing it. And we don't have to look too far back to see media and venture capital hyper-focused on some new buzzword or trend, right? Blockchain was, and crypto was the thing for so many years. And now generative AI is the new child and the new shiny toy. So Pat, this is the part of the show that is the most fun, which is getting to know you, right? And so when I ask you some questions that have nothing to do with title, nothing to do with rates, what is your favorite sandwich? Well, you know, it, it, this is going to sound pretty blasé, but I love chicken with cranberries. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I visited you there, and so I have some ideas, but I want to hear it from you. What do you love most about Portland, Oregon? If I could take just a second, Costa, I grew up in a little teeny town in southwestern North Dakota on the southern edge of the North Dakota Badlands. And we used to come out to Portland to visit my mom's family because she grew up here. And I was always in awe of how green it was, how tall the trees were, the rivers, just nature itself. When I got out of the Army, I spent a lot of time backpacking. I, I backpacked most of the Pacific Crest Trail in Oregon and Washington. And I just love the outdoors. I love nature and uh, living here. I get to experience it every single day. And it just, I love it. It's something that... I'll never forget. I was landing in Portland and coming to visit you. And as the plane was making that final approach, the trees, the greenery, like it's just such a gorgeous landscape. It was really, it's, it's magical, really. I see why you love Portland. It's such a beautiful part of our country and a beautiful part of the world. What movie do you wish that you could watch again for the first time? Okay, now I'm going to say something here and it's going to maybe... <laughs> <laughs> less than everybody's opinion of my masculinity, but I, uh, my favorite movie is Love Actually. And uh, <laughs> my, my wife and I and our kids, our, our three daughters and their significant others, every Christmas season, we watch Love Actually together. What I like about it is 
It's a movie that focuses on love and friendship and just human relations. And we don't spend enough time in our life on human relations. We're always focused on money, technology, this, that, or the other thing. And what makes life valuable is the relationships we have with people, uh, the ones we love and the ones we consider friends. It doesn't get any better than having friends and having people that love you. You know, I'm not even going to dare ask another question after that, um, but, but just when I thought that you and I weren't even more alike, back in the day when you, you used to actually buy movies, right, instead of renting them, now, of course, you can stream everything. Yeah. Love Actually is one of five movies that I own. And <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I watch it two or three times every Christmas season. I watch it with my nephews. Um, it is one of my favorite movies, and I couldn't agree with you more. I still get goosebumps every time there's that scene around Heathrow Airport, right, where they talk about how much love exists when people and loved ones are embracing each other at Heathrow. So, Pat, thank you so much for carving out time from your schedule. It means a lot to me and to the team here at Stavi. Thank you for being great partners of ours. Thank you for being such a critical component of the title industry, never being afraid to speak the truth and roll up your sleeves and help agents and other uh, professionals. You're a true role model to me, and uh, and I'm grateful for that. Costa, thank you for having me on, and thank you for being a friend. Thanks for the download. For every podcast episode, please visit stavi.com forward slash finside dash chats, or join us on your favorite podcast platform. All rights reserved. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only and cannot be copied or broadcast without the consent of Stavi Incorporated. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide specific legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any products or business. Please seek legal or financial advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of Stavi. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors.